folks. Today on the podcast, we have on Jonathan Benmarin. He is a columnist, author, speaker, podcaster, and activist. Very active guy involved in a number of different, um, yeah, adventures and uh, and organizations. And he's doing a lot of cool different things. So we're excited to talk to him about culture, I guess, more broadly, and then a couple different uh, specific issues within the culture, abortion, uh, pornography, pro-life, poli- pro-life politics, that sort of thing. So uh, thank you, Jonathan, for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, great to be with you guys. Wonderful. So I guess we'll just start it off. And maybe you can give the folks uh, who aren't familiar with your work, although I suspect a fair number will be, um, who you are, what you've been doing, and kind of, uh, yeah, how you got to your your current job, and I guess what you would describe your current job as. Yeah, I'll give the short version because it's been more years than I like to admit now. Um, but back when I was in uh, when I was in university, I saw a video of an abortion for the first time. While I was looking for for more information so I could articulate my position to my professors. And that brought me face to face with the babies that were being killed in Canada, 300 every day. And it's fair to say that, that that experience definitely transformed the trajectory of my life. Before that, I was planning to do academia. Um, I had a couple of different offers for uh, going for my master's degree, including at Simon Fraser University, where I was uh, getting my my degree in history. And so I started getting involved in the pro-life movement. Uh, I I took over the pro-life club and we were doing different events. I actually spoke uh, at one of the first ARPA events when it was just getting rebooted um, as a student representative of of talking about what it was like to do pro-life work on campus. Um, and then I, I joined CCBR for their very first trip to Florida, where they set up displays on campuses and they take students from the frozen north uh, down south for sun and activism. And I started having conversations with people about abortion. One of the first women I talked to said she'd had one a couple of weeks ago and said she actually wouldn't have had an abortion if we'd been there and she'd she'd seen what abortion actually was. And that was a huge motivator for me to, to get involved because I realized not only was this an issue worth doing something about, um, but there were things that could be done that could actually actually make an impact and save lives because yeah, who wants to go into a, to a full-time job, virtue signaling, even if the virtue needs to be signaled, it just didn't seem super fulfilling to, you know, be the sort of person who makes a career saying things that everybody else either agrees with or disagrees with, but doesn't actually make a cultural impact. Mm-hmm. And so that really uh, got me involved with CCBR style activism, which is showing abortion victim photography having uh, conversations with people on campuses at high schools on the streets. And then so in my fourth year university, when I was trying to figure out where to go for my master's, uh, Stephanie Gray, who was then the executive director of CCBR, phoned me and asked if I'd come and work for them to help put together a national plan to impact uh, public opinion. And I said, yes, move to Calgary. And then they sent me out east to start their CCBR office out here in 2012. And that's the really short version of, of how I ended up talking to you guys. Right. Oh, very cool. cool. So uh, maybe just before we keep going farther, uh, you want to define uh, CCBR for the folks at home and just explain what they do and what they are? Yeah. So the, the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform is, is Canada's uh, educational organization that seeks to basically confront people with the truth about abortion and what the child looks like in the womb and to engage them in conversation about abortion. So we have a variety of projects from street displays, campus displays, as I mentioned earlier, we have truth trucks that show photos both of abortion victims as well as what babies look like in the womb when they have not been killed by abortionists. We've honed apologetics now uh, over 10 years. Um, We run polling data before and after 
our projects to determine what sort of an impact we're having, uh, both on the conversation and on people's views of abortion. And so that's basically uh, what we do. We've got offices in, in Manitoba, in Alberta, in BC, and in Ontario. Uh, so we started off in 2011 when I started and we were working on the plan. There was five of us within five years that grew by roughly 10 times um, and kind of spread across the country, primarily because a lot of people found it incredibly rewarding to have conversations with the peers and actually watch them change their minds on the issue. So I always say people often get brought into the pro-life movement uh, based on some personal experience. So for me, it would be seeing a video of an abortion for the first time, but they stay because they realize that there's things they can do that make a tangible difference in people's lives. Because I, like I said before, nobody would stick around in the pro-life movement long-term if all they were doing was sort of articulating their opinion uh, into a whirlwind with no impact, because that's just not the sort of thing that's sustainable for very long. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I was just curious, um, maybe, maybe to do some shameless plugging of some of your stuff that you've done. I know you've written a few books and some, uh, and you're, uh, you run some podcasts and stuff like that. Uh, maybe just, uh, give folks, a you know, another avenue to get in touch with your work, but also like, um, yeah, yeah. What, like, what have you, what have you written and, and what was the top, what were the topics of the, your books that you've written and stuff? All my work is sort of um, pooled at, at the bridgehead.ca. I write for, for a couple of different publications, but I post everything there. So it's all accessible there. And I write on a, on a wide range of cultural issues, but essentially if I had to boil it down, it's uh, the West post-sexual revolution. Because abortion, of course, is a symptom of the sexual revolution. And the sexual revolution was the most successful revolution in world history in terms of the way it transformed a 2,000-year-old civilization in less than half a century and completely redefined the way we interact with our government, with each other, with our families, and even um, in the way we see each other as human beings in the case of abortion. And so I started doing research into the culture more broadly, actually, as a direct result of conversations I was having on the streets, because I realized very quickly that, that issues like pornography, which has no immediate and apparent connection to, to the abortion debate, actually had a very significant connection to the abortion debate in a very real way. So guys that we were talking to um, at high schools and on campuses especially, were very, very pornified in their manner of thinking, as in they've been looking at porn since ages 9, 10, or 11, usually. Um, and that had created an almost pornographic ideology of the person, of the other. And it's very difficult to convince a guy um, who's already dehumanizing and objectifying women uh, when they can see women and presumably love and are friends with some women. Um, it's very hard to convince them that the baby that they can see is a, is a human being. And pornography was also sort of creating this ideology of sex without consequences or sex without pregnancy. It was further sort of detaching procreation um, um, from sex. I remember one guy at the University of Calgary and he was like a third year philosophy student said like, you know, I got my girlfriend pregnant. And I don't even know how that happened. And I remember looking at him and, and saying like, I wasn't even there and I, and I can tell you how it happened, right? How did the public school system fail you so badly? But it was kind of conversations like that that started me researching into, okay, what's the cultural, historical, chronological framework for the work that we're doing in the pro-life movement at ARPA, We Need a Law, CCBR, CLC, Life Canada, right? Our organizations resist in response to something. What are we actually responding to? What historical circumstances are we operating in? 
And so I started a culture war course for our interns at CCBR that we have every year. And then that got turned into a book called The Culture War, um, which came out in 2016, which is basically um, the, the popular history, non-academic version of how we got from there to here in 200 pages. Uh, because I, I had to read, I think, 10,000 pages total to, to write the book. Um, but most of what I read is not going to be read by any normal person. Um, because they're never going to pick up books like that. They're not going to wade through studies like those. Uh, and so my goal was basically to present, you know, an ordinary person who just wants to understand the culture with a short, readable version filled with personal anecdotes and experiences uh, of, of the sexual revolution and its aftermath, which you and I are all living through today. Mm -hmm. And so after that, I wrote a book on pro-life strategy called Seeing is Believing, which obviously has a narrower audience because it's for pro-life activists who actually care about the specific strategies of, of changing public opinion. My colleague, uh, Blaise Elaine, and I uh, wrote a book called A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide, which is a very unintimidating and short size. And we did that just because a lot of great stuff had been written on the ethics of euthanasia and assisted suicide. Um, but what we specialize in is coming up with the arguments that, that are most effective at reaching everyday people who aren't reading Christoph Gaskor and aren't reading Robert P. George and, and all of these guys. And so we basically street tested arguments for a year until we found the best arguments that worked for everyday Canadians on the issue. And then the final book I wrote, uh, which there was supposed to be a book tour in Ireland and, and, and that was actually written on behalf of the Irish to be in conjunction with a documentary that is now going to be released soon, but was going to be released last year. But um, as I'm sure the viewers and listeners are aware, the COVID-19 pandemic kind of placed most plans on hold. But that book was called uh, Patriots, the Untold Story of Ireland's Pro-Life Movement. It was kind of the story of how they kept abortion out for 35 years, which is a really incredible story. Yeah. Mm. Fascinating. Well, there's definitely a million That's different cool. directions we can go with all of your work there. Um, I think I think maybe we'll just let's go into the realm of media for a second and then we'll we'll start to get back into some of the social issues. Um, so you're obviously you work in the media space, uh, but you're also a pro-life activist, as we talked about off the top there, too. Uh, so what was your kind of journey into the media space? I mean, this is like, you know, for all intents and purposes, a full time gig for you. You're a writer, podcaster, speaker. How did you get into something like that? And do you have any advice for other, uh, yeah, I guess, aspiring younger people who are looking to make a difference in in the culture wars like you talked about in and going into something like media? Yeah, interestingly, I didn't start off actually writing about uh, about abortion and social issues primarily. Um, I've been writing since I was a kid just because it's something I've always enjoyed. But when I when I was when I was in university, I was actually working with a bunch of different Jewish groups like B'nai B'rith because my concentration was in Middle Eastern history. And through my connections with them, they actually got me a bunch of gigs with the Jewish Independent in Vancouver. And I got to interview like Mark Stein and the last surviving uh, Jew from Schindler's List. He since passed away, but that was an incredible, uh, incredible discussion. And from there, I started working uh, um, for The Peak, which was Simon Fraser University's campus paper, which had a circulation of over 20,000. So it was kind of neat. And I wrote for the opinions on the editorial section. Um, at that point, it was run by uh, J.J. McCullough first, he now writes for the Washington Post, and then uh, Graham Templeton, who was a libertarian. And so though, although he was pro-abortion, he would allow us to actually express our opinions. And so I started writing about abortion because I was running the pro-life club and they were calling us the Hitler youth and they were vandalizing our displays and, and, and saying all sorts of ludicrous things. And so I would write in response to that while also writing about Middle Eastern issues. And then I kept on blogging after I joined CCBR 
Um, and then from there, actually, I just ended up getting asked to write for a lot of places. Most of the places that I write for asked me to write for them. Same thing with, with the podcast. I got asked to do it. I was doing one myself purely for fun, by which I mean, I read all these books, um, by people who have studied how our culture got to this place. And I wanted to have conversations with them. I wanted to ask them about their books. And so that did okay. Like, you know, it wasn't, it was like, we didn't get crazy hits or anything like that, but what it did do was it attracted the attention of, of enough other places that asked me to write for them and to podcast for them and what have you. And then last year uh, during the, the COVID shutdown, when a lot of our activism was on hold, I ended up writing for, for a lot of other places um, just because one of the things that I've wanted to do for a while was I find that the, like the pro-life uh, sphere and the sort of traditionally conservative sphere don't overlap a lot. And that's especially true in Canada, as you guys will know, right? Mm -hmm. The Manning Center is, doesn't bear any resemblance to a Life Canada conference, but it's kind of true in, in the U.S. as well. Um, there's like a sort of a, sort of a pro-life ecosystem that if you're a part of it, you know who Scott Klusendorf is, you know who Joe Scheidler is, you know who Lila Rose is. If you're in the conservative space, you may know who those people are and you may not. You might know who Lila Rose is. You probably won't know who Joe Scheidler is. Um, you know, if Scott Klusendorf has spoken in your church or you've picked up his book, you might know who he is. But those circles don't overlap a lot. And so publications like National Review, The American Conservative, First Things, which I think should be writing about the pro-life movement, writing about pro-life issues, aren't doing so. Um, and so I really wanted to start writing uh, about the pro-life movement for some of those publications. So uh, for Christianity Today and the American Conservative, I wrote about that documentary that came out about Norma McCorvey, Jane Rove, Roe v. Wade last year, claiming she'd actually been pro-choice. I interviewed all of her friends, um, reviewed her books and, and did a piece for both of them. Um, I reviewed a pro-abortion uh, movie for, for National Review. Um, for first things, I wrote a few pieces on abortion, and then I started to review books actually uh, by pro-life activists for publications that wouldn't ordinarily do so. So I reviewed Lila Rose's recent book for the American Conservative, and then one of the pieces I was most uh, pleased to be able to write was one of my heroes, Joe Scheidler, uh, whose nickname is the godfather of the pro-life movement, um, died in, in, in his early 90s in February of this year, and I was invited to attend his funeral I made it out just before Joe Biden um, said that you had to, you know, quarantine for two weeks in the U.S. when you flew in. And I got to write a, a, an obituary for Joe Scheidler for the American conservative, which was just something I felt he profoundly deserved. And, and, and I wanted to introduce him to an audience of people who might be pro-life, but don't know any of the people who have been fighting for babies for, for 40, 50 years. So that's kind of the short version of how I ended up doing writing almost full time. And that's because for CCBR as well. Um, culture writing is one of the one of the many things that I do for CCBR, and CCBR has given me the space to be able to basically produce daily commentary first thing in the morning on a, on a wide range of issues. Oh, wow, that's cool, fascinating. Yes. Did you? Yeah. So you described a lot of different publications there, and and definitely some of those are are closer to the mainstream than others. Um, but yeah. you've obviously. Um, I mean, it's no surprise to anyone listening that the mainstream media is not eager to cover any of uh, the issues you typically write about. So, I, I mean, yeah, you've, you've probably found some resistance to getting into some of those institutions. Do you see uh, more broadly, um, yeah, the, the the growing power of alternative media? And what do you make of, I guess, the pitfalls of uh, kind of traditional media structures falling away and then these alternative one, alternative ones rising up? Is there um, things to consider in terms of where Christians can get their news and pro-lifers can get their news? 
And what would you what would you advise just in today's media landscape in terms of news intake? This is like one of one of the toughest and most complicated questions to answer because the rise of alternative media is obviously hugely positive and in another way negative. And one of the reasons it's so negative is because it's only uh, arisen in response to the fact that uh, establishment media like the New York Times, the L.A. Times, the Washington Post, like organizations with huge teams of reporters and massive budgets have basically um, taken picked a side uh, in, in terms of, of the, the moral and cultural revolution we've been engaging with and then lost the trust of the people. And that means that we end up having media that explicitly endorsed one opinion or another. And everybody's kind of kind of weighed their way through everything. But what it means too, and, and um, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had anybody on your show to talk about conspiracy theories, but it's a fairly relevant <laughs> topic at the moment, is what you end up having is people just going to alternative media um, featuring people who agree with some of their views and then buying in, buying into the whole thing. So one of the reasons there's so many conspiracy theories flying around right now is because nobody knows where to go for truth. And they always assume the worst of those who disagree with them on key issues. Like the number of debates I've actually had uh, about um, a very, a cons one conspiracy theory or another with regard to COVID-19, like theories that could be debunked by a basic knowledge of Westminster parliamentary democracy and things like that. And, and, then, and then their response always is like, well, but they support abortion. And if, if they're willing to support abortion, like what won't they support? And it's just like, well, like just because they would do something if they had the chance doesn't mean they're doing it. And, you know, people are schizophrenic when it comes to moral issues. And that's not a good argument, but that's sort of the, the scenario that we've created. Mm. You've also created a system where instead of having people who curate information and convey it to people um, and like tell you what they saw on the ground, you have people who make money um, basically by, by, you know, keeping white boomers angry. Um, yep. Like there's actually uh, entire studies done on, on people who spend all day watching Fox News and there's never something to not be livid about if you're watching Fox News all the time. Hmm. And it's the same thing. A Canadian example would be Ezra Levant's Rebel. Like I've met Ezra a bunch of times. Um, I like him as a person, but a lot of what the Rebel does is that, right? It's keep people angry, keep them signing petitions, keep them, keep them clicking. And I could cite specific examples of, of uh, situations that were actually created by um, the rebel team with the express purpose of getting people angry and clicking and making money. And I, I get like, it, it, it's, it's, it's really difficult because when you write anything and look, I write, I write stuff every day, you're always inclined to like, well, if nobody reads this, what was the point of writing it? So you do want to have clicks. You guys want this with your show. I want this with my podcast, right? We both probably, you know, brainstorm the titles for our shows to, to uh, like, to the end of getting people to click on them. And yeah, yeah. controversy uh, reigns supreme. But then there's a line somewhere in between, like, it's a pretty crappy way to make a living when you're just basically telling people to be scared, angry, or furious all the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's just trying to figure out, I don't really like much of the media, to be honest, um, because a lot of the alternative media, I think, is in the business of just keeping people angry all the time. And uh, the mainstream media, like, they can't be trusted even when you want to trust them. Like I remember, so uh, an example just from this month would be the investigation that came out and it turns out all those protesters that were cleared with tear gas um, off the white, like from surrounding the White House when Trump yeah. went out and had his sort of ridiculous um, Bible photograph yeah, photo yeah, shoot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you know, I mean, was like, how dare he do that? This was dumb. It was a terrible photo shoot, which it was. He was holding it upside down. Uh, and I remember <laughs> thinking, yeah, that was kind of a ridiculous thing to do, right? I'm not a hardcore Trump partisan. 
Um, and then it turns out that was wrong, right? And with the Russian collusion thing, you're like, yeah, Trump's done a lot of corrupt stuff. I can see why. That all turned to be made up too. And so you get stuck where you're like, look, like even somebody like myself who's trying to be honest, trying not to be hyper-partisan, trying to see, you know, where the Republican guy did the bad thing, where he deserves the vociferous criticism. But since half the stories you come up with are garbage, I'm almost less inclined to critique anybody on my side because I can't trust people conveying the information to me. So basically it's Mm -hmm. contributed to this really low trust society in which I think people are duty bound to educate themselves more on a lot of the issues, because just to give an example, a lot of the COVID conspiracy theories to my mind wouldn't have taken off if people had a basic understanding um, of provincial politics, of of governmental politics. And with the COVID-19 crisis, you had a whole bunch of people who had never been interested in (laughs) politics before, who suddenly were interested in politics because it was affecting their lives in a way it never had before. Mm. And then there was a whole bunch of grifters scrambling to give them an opinion, you know, in a split second and keep them angry and keep them clicking and keep on talking about, you know, um, Bill Gates and and the Antichrist getting inserted into your veins through a COVID vaccination or what have you. <laughs> and I, like, I heard some truly crazy stuff about this. And mm. I, like, I, I am ambivalent and I have very ambiguous feelings about all that stuff. But the theories were, I heard one theory from, from a church person that, that, um, that Trudeau was in the cottage because he'd been arrested for being a pedophile and he had like an ankle ring. And it's just like, so to what extent do you have to be detached from like the real provable world as it exists to believe yeah. that, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And if you understand politics or the Canadian judicial system or any number of things, you'd understand why that scenario isn't plausible. And so I think people need to educate themselves better in, in, in politics. They have to understand that, the uh, like slander does apply to people we hate too, including Justin Trudeau. And you have to look at people in the media space and examine their credibility. And why are they telling me this? Like what, what's in yeah. it for them? Um, yeah. But it, it, as, as you can see from this, uh, this chaotic sc- scattershot answer, it's a really difficult question because we're all still sort of working through it. Right. Like yeah. rebel gets it right more often than the, than MSNBC it doesn't mean they're not both doing a bad thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess just how do you go about like, so you write every day and you cover a lot of different issues. And so do you have a do you have a news source, some sort of amalgamation of different sources that you go to just to kind of, yeah, find, find the facts? Like I've heard the strategy before. OK, so if you read a couple left wing sites, you read a couple right wing sites, maybe a few in the center if, if those exist. And then you try to pull a narrative of the facts from across all the sites you read, which is, you know, time and you know yeah, labor, for labor intensive for yeah. sure. So yeah. for most people, it's understandable why they can get sucked down the rabbit hole of, you know, QAnon or whatever other theories are out there. Right. So but do, do you have some sort of routine for yourself? So I, I do that for starters. Um, I follow all of the left wing and the right wing sites and all the way to the edges of the fringe. So mm. Open Democracy, The Guardian, Press Progress, The Rebel, like I kind of try to follow everybody. And then what I do, and granted, like, look, I have more time because I'm actually trying to provide information to people. So it's part of my job to, to confirm accuracy. As much as possible, I try, to, I try to interview somebody who knows what they're talking about, somebody who's there, an actual expert. So when people are opining, for example, on whether this case is going to overturn Roe v. Wade or do this or that, I actually try to talk to a pro-life attorney who works on the case. 
yeah. um, rather than just write a headline that would get like lots of clicks, which of course I always appreciate as anybody who writes anything does. We're all vain and we all want people to read what we actually put our work into. Um, I try to find somebody who knows what they're talking about so that it's as accurate as possible. And I, what, what I always try to do is I always try to put like, I think, or in my opinion, ahead of anything that's mine. And it's really funny because on the bridgehead, people will often comment like, that's just your opinion. I'm like, yeah, I know. It's Correct. like, this is my website and this is where I write my opinions. And <laughs> I don't claim to be objective either um, in terms of like, I like how Ted Byfield described the Alberta report back in the day. He said, everybody has a bias. And he said, we are overtly Christian, but we report the news as if Christianity were true. And that's, that's what I try to do. Like, for, like I have an epistemology, I have a worldview. Yep. And so, yes, when I report, uh, when I report on anything and I write on anything, it's coming from that perspective. And yep. I'm pretty upfront about that. But Ted Byfield to refer to him again, he had, a, he always had a great practice. Journalists would ask him what his religion was, as if it was a gotcha question. And then he would answer it honestly. And he said, so what's yours? And they would always get mm -hmm. really offended and worked up. But his point was like, look, I'm up front with my epistemology, with my worldview, and you're not. Um, so I think that's really helpful for people to know. But mm. um, honestly, like, it's not too hard to narrow it down to, 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 to publications that you like. And look for the people that aren't just doing the clickbait and, and know, know the writer, honestly, is, is, is what, what I do a lot now, right? Like the whole QAnon theory is based on the revelations of a guy who is as of yet still unidentified. And he's like the Harold Camping of conspiracy theories. Like, he can be wrong infinite numbers of times and still maintain a group of followers. Like it's a pretty sick gig if you can get it, but like, <laughs> my goodness, just applying basic prudence to the way this guy operates, yeah. right? It's just, this is, it's not serious stuff. And, and it does kind of drive me crazy because mm. this has gone beyond bias confirmation into a whole new realm of, of like alternative worlds being created. And that's just nuts to me. Yeah. Yeah. And a danger going a little too far into this, but do you find that the, the alternative media and, and the mainstream media, um, that kind of debate is more important than, um, you know, I'm sure you've watched the social dilemma and, and you know, how, when we're on social media, you know, the, there's algorithms behind the behind the scenes just showing you what you want to see, because yeah. when, you, when you like something, it, it shows you something else you might like. And, and it, you know, those things kind of push people to the fringes. Like, is that a, is that a danger that's that's really alive in our especially in the Canadian media? Especially in our church communities. So I hate social media for three primary reasons now. One, because I feel the pull of it every bit as much as everybody else. I'm a yep. political junkie, and there's a reason the term junkie is used, right? Nice. I can scroll Twitter with all my political accounts, my media accounts, for an hour and not get bored. And, mm -hmm. and, I, and I hate the fact that I feel like a crackhead around my phone at age 32. Um, and I hate the fact that I actually have to be very intentional about not spending time on my phone. Mm -hmm. Two, it's making everybody much more miserable than they need to be. And I remember like it was right around like April or May of last year when I was like scrolling my phone and feeling miserable about everything because, you know, my like entire summer was just event after canceled event. There was all these talks that were canceled. I had a book tour canceled. I had two tours in Europe canceled. Um, and, and, and then I, like, I kind of lowered my phone for a minute and I've got two beautiful kids. I have a whole bunch of chickens outside. I have a whole bunch of pheasants and birds because this is my hobby. Um, you know, I have an amazing marriage and a library full of books. I'm like, everything outside this square box is actually pretty good. So what am I doing just doom scrolling and not being grateful for all the things that I've been given and going out and enjoying them, right? Yeah. Um, 
And so like, <laughs> I, I hate it because I noticed this on almost everybody around me that they spent all this time. And part of it was because COVID-19 was a total loss of control for all of us, right? So for the first month, we, we were all, you know, quite pious about it. And yeah, no, this is God showing us we're not in control. And by, you know, by April, like we learned the lesson we need some control back now. <laughs> I need to know how my life is going to go, right? But one of the ways we tried to sort of not only like retain or assert control was if I know what's going on every minute, that gives me some measure of control over events, right? Like mm. I know what the newest COVID numbers are or how close they are to a vaccine or why you shouldn't take the vaccine or whatever. Um, the third thing is I find that everybody likes each other less on social media. And that absolutely has everything to do with like even your family and friends. So I've noticed mm. this with tons of people around me, especially because everything makes everybody angry right now. So there's, yeah. you know, pro vaccination and there's anti vaccination. There's pro black lives matter or against there's pro Israel or anti Israel. Like you pick an issue, but it's, it feels like, especially in the last 12 months, like every issue is a do or die issue where people have to like kill each other um, mm -hmm. or like they, they can't just, they can't back off of it. Yeah. And so people used to say, well, I like social media because I like being connected to all of my, you know, my cousins and my friends and my classmates from like all over, uh, you know, North America or the world. In reality now, somebody you would really like, if you just saw them at the next family barbecue, you're like, why is this moron posting the Black Lives Matter thing on the Facebook? I can't stand this person. When in reality, you do actually like them. When you see them next, you'll super enjoy their company. They have a temporary difference of opinion with you. And social media is making you hate somebody you actually like. And yeah. more than that is family. And that blood relationship is far more important than our political differences, you know, in the current moment. So that's, that's what the sort of the final reason I really do hate social media besides the silos is because I feel like it's not only doing the opposite of bringing us together politically in terms of partisan silos. I feel like what it's also doing is it's making like actual families and friends and church communities and former classmates all hate each other because they just basically scroll through a laundry list of garbage opinions about everything from right, left and center. And then they log off, you know, angry at everybody because nobody agrees with their particular opinion on COVID or Black Lives Matter or whatever. So yeah. I just... I've been trying my very best to stay off of it as much as, as I can. If I didn't need it to basically post all the content for the, or the organization I work with, I get rid of it entirely because social media almost always makes my life worse and, and very rarely makes it better. There's nobody I like so much that I'm like, Oh, I missed a picture of his dinner. I could call him. Right. And actually have a real <laughs> conversation with him. So yeah, yeah the, the negatives hugely outweigh the positives and more so this year than any previous year. Mm, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's a good transition point, I think. We're talking yeah, about we tech and, and garbage on the internet and mm -hmm. trying to control your tech usage. Because, um, yeah, social media is surely a dumpster fire, but there's uh, there's other dark spots on the internet as well. And you write a lot about uh, porn and porn culture. Uh, we had Tim Chelly's on. Uh, that was one of our first episodes. Yeah, and he, ago, he yeah. mentioned, uh, we talked about porn a bit with him too. And how, uh, yeah, how impactful and important of an issue it is. And it's just, it's yeah, it's everywhere. Um, so I guess maybe just, if you want to just kind of preview... Uh, yeah, what's what's been your work in that space? What have you been advocating for? Have you seen any trends over the period of your career? Uh, I'm not going to say a long career. You're not that old. Don't worry. <laughs> but uh, over the course, of, let's say a decade or whatever, you've been you've been in this in the trenches on this stuff. What sort of uh, approach have you seen? Let's say Christians take in churches, and has right. there been any improvement in this space in this area? So I guess I could give you. Um, to that's such a big topic so i'll basically hone in on um, when you say i've seen any change so i'll give you three three areas where i've seen things change for good and for bad 
Yeah. The first one is bad. The bad things that I've seen is that when I started talk, I think I gave my first presentation on pornography in 2011. So 10 years ago now. Um, and back then when I talked to people, whether it was people that I knew or at schools about porn, the average person hadn't seen porn until they were a teenager. Now, um, even in Christian schools, and this is Canadian reformed, United reformed, generic reform schools, the average age that they've seen porn is grade six. Um, and that's like pretty standard and it's not at all abnormal. I can't say it's the norm because obviously from a, from a data point of view, I have a fairly limited pool, but I'll say that it's, it's certainly not abnormal. That's a very common story. Mm. Um, like I get girls, you know, are 13 asking me why their boyfriends are asking them for sex acts. I hadn't even heard of, um, and like, this is, these, these are all in Christian schools for obvious mm-hmm. reasons. I don't get invited to public schools to give these talks. Although I have debated a queer studies professor on, on public radio on the subject, which was a lot of, I won't say fun, but it was definitely um, rewarding and interesting. So that's the first one is that the rate of porn use has been getting younger and younger and younger. I really fear that the huge number of parents who don't pay any attention to this issue um, are going to be in for a nasty surprise in a couple of years because everything's been moving online. Mm -hmm. Um, just as we should be, you know, taking control of technology in our lives and moving away from constant screen time, the COVID-19 pandemic has moved everybody onto screen. So like, I'm not the first one to say this, but, but like the COVID pandemic in many ways hasn't like revealed anything new. It's just exacerbated existing trends. And and Mm -hmm. one of those trends is the digitization of all life. Some of you guys will have seen the documentary over 18, right? The kid who got addicted to porn when he was like seven or eight, he got addicted at home on a laptop across the table from his mom, right? While he was getting homeschooled. So those who think that just because they're at home, um, they're going to dodge the bullet, not necessarily the case at all. The second thing would be, would be a somewhat positive thing, which is I've seen an increasing number of churches willing to talk about the issue because the problem has gotten so big, they can't ignore it, which has positives and benefits. Like in some ways it's like it had to get so bad. They couldn't ignore it before it got addressed. Mm -hmm. At the same time, at least they are actually addressing it. I get a pretty phenomenal response whenever I give talks from guys who are like, thank goodness somebody's finally talking about it because I actually want to quit. I remember actually at one Canadian reformed church last year or whatever. I don't remember. It was pre pandemic time blurs. Um, I remember that what he said and you know, when he handed him the question was um, we would like one of the elders, one of the dads, like one of the pastors to actually out loud say, we, we want to start discussing this and helping you guys out. A lot of guys, I think a lot of, and a lot of people are willing and waiting uh, to get the help to get free. And so that's that I find encouraging. The third thing I, I would say is, is similar, but also encouraging which is compared to when I started writing about this and I wrote an essay comparing porn to rape culture. And I defended that thesis in a a speech at university of Ottawa and, and as well on the, on the radio in London, Ontario, Um, that's increasingly recognized by governments in a way it wasn't previously. So um, uh, MP Arnold Viersen, who you all know as well, he goes to the Canadian reform church. He's from Peace River Westlock. Um, he, he started uh, working on the issue of pornography almost immediately in his career as a parliamentarian. And he's now putting forward legislation uh, that will attempt to guarantee consent in the porn industry, which is one more tactic in sort of the uh, Gulliver's Travels version of tying down this beast. Um, mm-hmm. He's been doing great work on this throughout his entire career. Um, so he's really exceptional. He's one of the few parliamentarians I like uh, and I would defend absolutely without nuance because I think that his, his career has just been... Um, so like honorably dedicated to an issue where you're not going to get any praise or accolades, but so desperately needs to be talked about. And mm-hmm. um, 
with the with the expose of Pornhub in the New York Times by Nicholas Kristof last December. Uh, there's like six U.S. states that have declared a public health crisis. So did the Republican Party of the United States. You've got the United Kingdom looking at ways to keep the stuff away from kids. Australia is, Scandinavia is. So you have a lot more public awareness of how damaging porn is from places other than the church, mm. because sadly the church didn't really have much to say about this um, for years and years and years. This is, I would say, one of the first major social afflictions um, that has affected the church almost as badly as the secular culture. And therefore, I believe that pornography is the number one threat to families, communities, and churches, bar none. And I would defend that thesis against all comers. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's a strong statement, but I think, yeah, you're probably, you're probably right. Like it's, I mean, it's yeah. <laughs> no, no, we're good. <laughs> yeah, I'm not prepared for that. No, yeah. I mean, it's so prevalent, but it, and it's such a, an issue, but yeah, it seems to be developing even, you know, even over, you know, I'm not even old, but it seems that, uh, people are aware of it or, and, and I guess parents are more aware and, and also are more, um, you know, they're more useful on technology. They know how to, you know, go about using filters and these kind of things. And yeah, we talked to Jim Shalley's about like some of the, you know, the basics. So people want to, you know, hear how to actually go about that for their kids and stuff. Um, you the know, maybe go to that, but tech, yeah. But yeah, yeah anybody that, listening to this who, who wants to, to figure out how to get free, do go back to the Tim Shalley's episode. I've had him on before as well. And that phenomenal practical advice. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, and, and I'm sure like you've written a bunch of stuff on it too. So, um, but yeah, how does that tie in in more closely with the the whole uh, you know you describe as sexual revolution? Like, um, so we also don't want to talk about Pride Month because you know yeah it's you know it's June again. Um, so this this is all kind of tied together, and it kind of ties together with abortion too. So I wonder if uh, you could just maybe give like a an uh, overview of even even your book um, that that kind of describes you know where where were we and then where do we how do we get here. And then, you know, how did all these things like really tie together at a high level? Trying to think of how to take what's usually an hour and a half long presentation and give you a five minute chronology that actually makes sense. So the whole story <laughs> is in the book, The Culture War. You can get that at thebridgehead.ca. Let me give you a very short version. So you've got um, Alfred Kinsey publishes two books, one in 1948, the other in the, in the early 50s. One is human sexuality in the human male. The other one is adult sexuality in the human female. Basically making the case that virtually everybody in the United States is um, a sex criminal by the laws of that time. Advocates for the complete repeal of all laws regulating sexual behavior. The reason this has such a profound impact is due to the fact that an entire generation of young people heard our parents are fundamentally hypocrites. Nobody's actually living like Christians. Um, most people are, are, are cheating on their wives or having premarital sex. Um, the number 10% of people engaging in, 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 in gay sex, for example, comes from Kinsey. Even in 2021 in Pride Month, it's still not that high. But to give you an indication of how badly, um, how badly this lie was sold. But the law, the law was sold sort of hook, line, and sinker. It later turned out that Alfred Kinsey himself was a voracious bisexual who engaged in illegal porn shoots and wife swapping with his colleagues and uh, had a very specific agenda for creating the data that he did. I could get more into some uglier details of that, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to the side for now. Then there was also Margaret Mead, who wrote a book in 1928 called The Coming of Age in Samoa. And that book basically made the case that there were other cultures, specifically the Polynesian Samoan culture, where people lived without sexual inhibition and were happier. And this idea seemed to, 
debunk the idea of natural law, the idea that there was a created order and that human mm. beings are happier living inside that created order. So between these two people, Margaret Mead and, uh, and Alfred Kinsey, and I could go back another 200 years, but again, the point of the book was to create a helpful chronology for people. I refer to them as the mother and the father of the sexual revolution. Kinsey's pamphleteer, the man who attempted to popularize his ideas, will be more familiar than he is to most people. Uh, that man's name was uh, Hugh Hefner, who, when he read Kinsey's book, realized that there was a lot of money to be made and there was a, a worldview to promote. And so he started Playboy magazine in 1953. Um, eventually, uh, he, he got divorced and started living the famous Playboy philosophy. He soon had stiff competition with Hustler, Screw, Penthouse, porn magazines that got cruder and cruder and cruder. Porn went online, of course, in the mid-1990s with the advent of the internet, at which point it turned uh, from a river into a tidal wave that nobody could compete with and finally began to actually defeat the church in a way that we had never seen previously. Interestingly, in the in the late 80s, we had finally begun to win the war against the porn industry because, you know, bulky video cassettes and magazines were actually a product that you could fight. Once porn moved online, uh, the war was almost definitively lost at that point. You also in the 60s have the approval of, of the birth control pill, which was a giant step towards separating sex from procreation, convinced a lot of people who had just heard uh, from Alfred Kinsey that their parents were um, all engaging in this kind of behavior anyways. Uh, and began to sleep with whoever they want. Um, this is sort of the, the famous summer of love in the late 60s, which sort of is one of the iconic moments of the sexual revolution, even though in the grand scheme of things, it didn't have a whole lot of a difference. It's just as one of those events from which we have these great photos in Life magazine that everybody remembers. But from there, we, we basically see uh, in, the, in the 1970s, a sea change in people's views on sexuality, where they start to shift from a view that um, sex should be maintained in the heterosexual, monogamous, lifelong relationship of marriage to accepting premarital sex, uh, accepting cohabitation. And then we have the, the 1980s, the backlash, the rise of, of the pro-life movement, Operation Rescue, um, pushback against threats to religious liberty and things like that. Um, and then, of course, abortion was basically the sexual revolution's cleanup crew. Uh, because abortion, it turns out, is necessary when you tell people that they can have sex without consequences and condoms have a something like 13% fail rate and the birth control pill is frequently screwed up, skipped or ineffective. Um, babies show up. Those babies are unwanted by definition because people are using their reproductive organs for recreational purposes. And then as a result, you have 62 million corpses in, in, in the U.S. and over 4 million here in Canada, directly as a result of an ideology that said make love, not war, but unfortunately ended up doing a lot of both. Mm. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a lot packed into five minutes. That's concise, yeah. That, I mean, yeah, it kind of does wrap everything together. So You were talking about, um, yeah, you described it as a war and that the war was, was you know, somewhat lost, I suppose, once uh, porn went online. I guess to tie back to some of the work you were talking about Arnold was doing previously, um, is there any, is there any, you mentioned like New York times, uh, Nicholas Kristoff's work as well. Is there any signs of that, that tide changing? And are there any positive signs coming out of, out of Ottawa in terms of actions taken against Pornhub or, or MindGeek? Maybe explain the background. Positive that. signs coming out of Ottawa. Yeah, I know. Well, I know. There's an optimistic sentence. I thought you were a Calvinist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so yes and no, it'll just be interesting to see where this goes. Right. Because like the, the, a lot of the positive indications have been progressives also understanding how dangerous porn is, but progressives also cannot are constitutionally incapable of condemning things that don't, um, 
like they, can, they, they have to condone sexual liberation in all forms. I've interviewed feminists on this who basically say we should be able to condemn this, but but they can't um, because they have to say it's, you know, if it's totally morally listed in the eyes of a sexual revolutionary for a man to masturbate over a woman screaming in pain all night, because that's basically what a huge uh, chunk of violent pornography is. Whenever I put it that way, people are shocked. I'm like, what do you think it is that people are watching? 80% of mainstream porn is violent now. I could I, I could spend the rest of your show giving you examples from kids hooked on that stuff from Christian schools, reform schools, because that's what's mainstream since the 50 Shades of Grey craze uh, from a few years back, right? Um, like it's kind of interesting because I know a lot of libertarians would disagree with me. Um, and I know that even a lot of Christians would disagree with me, but I would 100% use the power of the state against the porn industry if you gave me 15 minutes and the power to do so. I, uh, most of the publications I write for are online. Um, I enjoy a, a decent sized audience that way. I love doing it. I love writing for a lot of the publications that I get to write, uh, write for. I would still get rid of the internet tomorrow if I had the chance just to get rid of porn because of how poisonous it is. Because um, a lot of people are saying like, well, the internet's brought so much good. I'm like, I wouldn't take the trade off. 53% mm -hmm. of American divorce court cases cite pornography as one of the key reasons for that divorce. 80% of young people view porn by the time they're between the ages of nine and 11. Like the sheer, like it's tearing at the social fabric of families, of couples, relationships, churches. None of that is worth, you know, our ability to get a hold of each other faster and to email each other quicker and to sell crap online. Like, yeah, you know, that's all great. I do all of it myself. I just refer people to my websites where I sell my books and where I post my writing. None of that's worth the cost that we paid um, for having uh, it basically turn in to the largest distributor of sexual violence in human history. So I, until we have a sea change, I think things are better than they were five years ago. Um, but that's a pretty low bar. So mm. I'm, I'm encouraged, but I'm not optimistic, if that makes any sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, hmm. Yeah, I'm curious how this all ties back into, you know, just our culture at like at large, like, I mean, it's obviously they're, tr they're trying to do something to the family, right? It's something, I mean, it's not really a them really. I mean, it's just, it's just culture in general, but in some it cases it's them. And in some cases it's just like really scummy people trying to make a lot of money, right? right? Like the yeah. owner of Pornhub isn't trying to destroy people. He just doesn't care if he has to do that to become a millionaire. Yeah, right. right. That's, yeah. The, that's yeah, the other exactly. thing we're getting to see. There's a reason there's so many arguments on the conservative right and inside Christianity and everybody's struggling with ideology right now because post-Christian capitalism isn't great either, right? You know, socialism is obviously, you know, the historic mistake of the 20th century. And I'm not sure how many bodies you would need uh, to confirm that, that, that it doesn't work. At the same time, once you, once you syringe Christian ethics out of capitalism and you're left with the vultures, that doesn't look great either, right? Mm. Um, so that's why uh, we're stuck in 2021 without a lot of great options, really, in terms... When, it is an interesting time to be alive if you're on the right and you're trying to work through your ideology and figure out what you believe, because so much has been leveled by cultural destruction. So much is in play. So many political boundaries have been crossed and recrossed um, that it's uniquely bewildering and uniquely interesting all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what is it about the, the? I guess it's not the family that's threatening to, to this, um, but it, it does seem that this whole um, sexual revolution is tearing the family apart and that 
also then, you know, gives that sexual revolution another, you know, another boost to keep keep going. Right. Um, Well, the sexual revolution can't survive without families. Right. Because family like marriage, by definition, takes two people off the market for good. At least Mm. that's what it's supposed to do. Um, And there's a whole bunch of different theories about this. Um, Peter Hitchens um, very presciently observes that slaves were allowed to copulate. They just weren't allowed to marry um, because sexual freedom actually enslaves us to a wide range of other things. There's a fairly chilling uh, documentary by Benjamin Nolot from Exodus Cry called Liberated, where he takes a look at the impact of the sexual revolution on young people at, at spring break in Florida. And it's really, really chilling stuff. It's because our culture has fundamentally confused the difference between pleasure and happiness and don't realize that the freedom of monogamy allows you to fully know one person rather than briefly and carnally know other people. It takes more of a man to keep one woman happy for a lifetime uh, than dozens for 10 or 15 minutes. But the sexual revolution basically tells you do what you want and assumes you have the wisdom to know what you want. And they have no worldview that tells them what's best for them. Mm. And so Christians actually do know what's best for them because God tells us what's best for us. We didn't make it up, but the sexual revolution throws all that out. The sinister aspect of this is it is absolutely true that a um, a society filled with autonomous individuals is easier to control in some ways, because it, like it, it's, it is very interesting. Um, one of the reasons that like large numbers of single young men are ordinarily dangerous is because all of their creative energy is directed outwards and, you know, fueling protests and making trouble and doing all sorts of things. The second they get married, pretty much all of their creative energy suddenly goes inwards. It's taking care of their wife. It's taking care of their kids. They want a house for their kids, right? Like they need to build a fence. They need to take care of them. And all of their energy is like, this is my realm right here. And everything that I do is is getting poured into this instead of outwards. And then all of these different units create a functioning society Hmm. with a social fabric tied together by civic, you know, civic communities, by church communities, um, you know, by religious groups and, and, and things like that. Once you take that away, um, you see enormous numbers of people who don't know what to believe in and don't know why they're here and they don't know why they're doing anything. So there's a brilliant book that came out last year, one of the best books, I think, to come out in five years in terms of its explanatory power. It's called Primal Screams, How the Sexual Revolution Created Identity Politics. And Mary Aberstadt, who's, I think, the greatest living writer on the sexual revolution, explains how what we're seeing on the streets with Black Lives Matter, with these climate marches, is basically a collective cultural howl of people asking, who am I? They need to be somebody, part of somebody. They need to identify with a group. If you'd asked me who I was when I was growing up, I would have said, well, I'm a Van Maren, right? I got the same ears as them. I got the same big mouth as a huge chunk of my cousins. Uh, you know, like, you know, you could you could kind of look at your huge family. There's 200 of us on the Van Maren side and, and a large number on the other side as well. And you could you can almost like, oh, I have his eyes and I'm like that person. Like, you know who you are because you have parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts and cousins and brothers and sisters. And you in that context belong. And if you belong nowhere else, you belong there. Hmm. But increasingly in a post-revolutionary world where the family has been subject to breakup for a half century, people no longer have that context to identify with. She has one um, just unbelievably truthful line. And the reason I say unbelievably is because she packed so much into such a short sentence. Uh, She said, identity politics is the screaming bastard child of the birth control pill. (laughs) And she even goes through the rates of people who didn't grow up with siblings. I remember the first time I met somebody with like one cousin. I'm like, you have one cousin? Like (laughs) you can have 50 or 60 of mine because like it's hard to keep up. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> but the, that is increasingly like the way people live. You've got the upside down family tree, right? Four yeah. grand grandparents, two parents, one kid. Yeah. And so identity politics, in some ways, everything's in flux because nobody knows who they are and they need something to believe in. They need something to love. They need something to subject themselves to. Everybody has to have a religion and everybody has to have a God. And the sexual revolution has actually created the conditions for what we see unfolding on the streets now. Yeah. Has the, so the culture has clearly lost its way. Has the church, um, well, I guess I would say the, the answer is obvious. I guess the church has kind of not been able to have the impact on switching the culture back to that. But those values you described about knowing your place, knowing your purpose, um, being able to identify with, with a family group and being able to, especially as young men to like to, to use your creative energies to build up your family and, and to build a life for them. Has the church done a, I guess the capital C church broadly in the West done a good job of explaining those values? Cause you do see, I'll go on a little bit of a tangent here, but uh, guys like a Dr. Peterson, Dr. Jordan Peterson, who has done a lot of work in just pointing people in the direction of the, these basic sort of biblical values and these basic values in terms of taking uh, personal responsibility, mm-hmm. looking at yourself first, not criticizing the world, putting your own room in order, that sort of thing, which has been uh, really effective and really impactful for millions across the world. Um, so does the church have a role to play in, in kind of directing people back to these basic values? Well, if Jordan Peterson taught us anything, it's the seeker-sensitive model is ridiculous, right? Everybody's like, you can't say this, you can't say that. You've got to lure them in with garbage contemporary music and, and like, you know, bad knockoff secular culture in order to convince them that the truth is worth listening to. And then this guy shows up and is like, I don't believe in gender ideology. Stop looking at porn. Save sex for marriage. Abortion is obviously wrong and clean your room. And everybody's like, make him rich. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of like like basically he took he took uh, this sort of secular religion without Jesus, um, sort of like a, almost kind of like a Catholic works religion of you can make yourself happy if you do if you do all of these things. And, uh, and he got rich and famous telling people stuff that presumably they didn't want to hear because they're they're, des- they're desperate for it now. Uh, like an entire generation of fatherless um, men and boys responded to him because nobody had ever taught him those things. So. Mm-hmm. It's very tricky when you talk about the church because some churches have done a great job and others not on the porn. I'll say this on the issue of porn, for example, which is where the church needs to be doing a lot of the heaviest lifting, in my opinion. Um, I understand why they didn't see the problem coming because nobody did. The feminists didn't see it coming. Secular culture didn't see it coming. The government didn't see it coming and the churches didn't see it coming. Sometimes I wonder why. Um, because when we got laptops and computers and all that, you know, I remember we like had filters on them and, and we could only use the laptop in the main room. And then smartphones came out and everybody, nobody thought to ask what somebody might look up on that. Right. And it was smartphones that took porn from a problem into a pandemic, um, that took it from something that some people were engaging into something that almost everybody was engaging in. Um, but now that the problem is here, any church that refuses to deal with the porn issue is, is guilty in my mind of criminal negligence. They're being bad church leaders, bad shepherds and bad parents, because at this point, the evidence is so overwhelming that to ignore it is like, you're, you're almost at like center of the earth head in the sand if you're if you're pretending this doesn't exist like you cannot find me a pastor who's not dealing with collapsing marriages because of porn you can't find me a single one of them that hasn't asked themselves why so many young men are detaching from the church right these there's one key answer to many of these questions and the evidence is out there and i i know very few church conferences i i spoke at an apologetics conference a few years ago 
And like the, the like it was a very big conference with a lot of big name people who were there. And the board member of, of this group um, who sat in on the talks came up to me afterwards. And I'm like, he probably thought I was too blunt and explicit and graphic um, in my excoriation uh, of the porn industry. And he actually said, that was very encouraging. I've been looking at porn for 50 years. Um, and this might've given me what I finally need to, to, to actually quit finally. This guy was like in his sixties, he's married, he's got kids. He's, you know, like a, a, a big guy in, in, in his church community and in Christian apologetics, like this stuff is everywhere. Yeah. Um, and recognizing that and working on rooting it out, it's going to be a lot of hard work, a lot of tough conversations, but we have to get started because it will destroy us. if We don't, um, mm-hmm. it's kind of like the snake in our bosom to use a biblical, a biblical phrase. Um, when it comes to other issues, I think the biggest struggle that that like more conservative churches like the ones we attend have had in confronting the sexual revolution is that we're not really good at talking about sex and no Christians have been. But we're at this period now where your choice is the upcoming generation is going to learn about sexuality from the culture or from the church. You get to pick. Um, and so it's not like, well, we're just not going to talk about it. I'm like, OK, well, they're going to get it from Netflix, Pornhub and Google. Um, and if you want that, then feel free to, you know, clam up about it. But for the rest of it, um, maybe it's time to start presenting them an actual alternative because they're going to get the information, right? Like mm, yeah. 30 years ago, parents could just like not talk about it and hope their kids eventually figured it out and could be fairly certain that there wasn't a lot of alternative ways of, of getting information until a certain age. That's no mm. longer the case anymore. and hasn't been the case now since the smartphone came out in 2007, probably earlier. It was a bad theory then anyways, but now it's criminal. So that's the thing that we really have to start addressing is we start have, well, we have answers to all these questions. We have the theology, we have the scriptures, right? God created sexuality. So God has something to say about it. And the churches are to re- represent that point of view and teach it to, to the members of the congregation. We don't do a good job of that. And it's long past time that we started because the consequences are being made manifest in every Christian congregation in North America. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. I guess maybe analogous to the porn issue, obviously, is is the issue of abortion, too. Do you see the same sort of attitudes? Well, maybe not the same, but um, I would say there's certainly a hesitancy to talk about, uh, not abortion, but if someone has had an abortion in a church, I don't know if that uh, is freely talked about. I mean, obviously, it's not something you want to spread around, per se. But just like I, I would think it goes on within churches as well in the not to the same extent. Yeah, so it does. Issues. And I could give you like a dozen examples of it happening inside reform circles. Right. Um, there's there's three interesting um, observations about your point you just made. The first is that originally people didn't talk about abortion, not because it wasn't considered a big deal, but because it was considered so obvious. That this yeah. was clearly a problem that only happened out there. Right. Yeah. So it's like they didn't frequently talk about people drowning their toddlers in bathtubs either because they assumed nobody was doing it. Yeah. Um, that wasn't a good excuse because again, as Calvinists, we seem to have a bizarrely idealistic view of human nature. Sometimes we really should have been preaching about these things, but that was the reason for it. Right. Um, now uh, it's being discussed more, um, but people don't really know how to address the post-abortive angle without normalizing it and without pretending it's less severe than it is. Yeah. Like our, our pastor did bring it up when I was doing um, um, confession of faith class and I actually said, if anybody's had an abortion, come visit me in my office, we'll pray about it. There is forgiveness for it. Um, and, but that was actually the first time I'd ever heard anybody talk about it sort of that bluntly. Um, mm. I, I think people are becoming more open about it now. ARPA has done a lot of good work in making it normal for reformed congregations to talk about abortion, I think. Um, so that's been good. The third group would be um, the more evangelical um, groups, 
which don't dare talk about it because they don't want to make people mad. It's the same reason people often won't talk about IVF and, and other unethical things. The yeah. reason they don't want to talk about it is because they don't want to make people who did it angry or upset. That would be that. So that would be a different category. I don't, I largely, I don't think that's the problem in reform circles, although I could be, I could be wrong for the Christian reform. It probably is at this point in downtown Toronto anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So it is talked about, but yeah, not as much. I think so. It, it probably tied like to the same extent as the porn conversation. Like you just, we need more conversation about it mm-hmm. and a good well, way. Yeah, I, Cause I, like I've had pastors and church leaders um, have me come and, and give talks about sexuality. And then they'll, they'll talk about like, we hear so much about the promiscuity and the youth and you know, it seems to go in ways. Like there's some classes that are really bad and others not some high schools that are really bad, some that are not. But one of the questions I always think is like, look, if that many people are sleeping around at parties and stuff like that, where are all the babies? Are you telling me all these, these kids who are, clearly stupid and doing dumb things are smart enough to properly use contraception and take the pill at the right time or are they taking plan b or the morning after pill are going to get an abortion right like if there's lots of sex happening and the babies aren't showing up you can make a very safe assumption that means are being utilized to ensure those babies don't show up and i could give you i won't of course but i could give you examples of communities where that's taking place in our reform circles Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it's and it's clearly i guess then if you if you take that it's like it's the accessibility of it that in our culture and, you know, that is, is, you know, hiding all of that, I guess, even within the church circle, I guess. So um, yeah, that's our- a good point. When, when you say accessibility, like the one point I would make is that like 20, 30 years ago, um, like our parents kind of raised us for a world that didn't exist by the time we grew up in it, mm-hmm. because the, the entire culture was more or less flowing in, in, in one direction. Right. Like when my mom went to public high school, they opened the day with the Lord's Prayer still. Right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Now it's different. Like now on every single point, almost without exception, the secular culture is actively hostile to the Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. And so like a life of active resistance and intentionality has to take place. You can't you can't have like. You can't flip through TV channels. You can't just partake in the same entertainment as everybody else, right? Like Blue's Clues has a drag queen teaching kids about the LGBT agenda. So you can't take anything for granted anymore, which means you have to live constantly intentionally. And a lot of people have found it pretty easy to just go with the flow for a long time. And now they kind of like looked up and were like, where are we? This is not a good place. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess another... Uh, area we, we haven't even uh, said euthanasia yet but I you I just actually listened to something that you did in, in uh, January um, with uh, Delta Hospice in uh, NBC but that issue too like it, it's not just about accessibility for euthanasia it's about being uh, being pressured in you know your weakest time to accept euthanasia or assisted suicide and and it's yeah so I guess on both the abortion and the the euthanasia thing it's it's not just it's not that the fact that it's there for you to use if you want it's that there are people there suggesting it when you know you're not at your it's, at your best or you're you aren't able to surround yourself with the people that you know you love and that will support you so no and like that's a good point and it's 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 something people should have realized, but again, they were so busy ramrodding this through that there was almost no discussion that took place, right? Mm-hmm. Almost the entire disability activist community spoke out against the most recent update to Canada's euthanasia regime, and the government just straight up ignored them. Uh, the case that Blaze and I make in our book, A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide, is that the fundamental lie of the, of the euthanasia, the suicide movement, is that this gives you freedom of choice, right? Same language as, as the abortion movement. Mm-hmm. but. And the difference between assisted suicide and anything else is the government actually draws a line between the population 
On one side are those the government has deemed so unworthy of life, they will fund and facilitate their suicide. On the other side are those whose lives have been deemed by the government to be so valuable that you will get suicide prevention and they will do everything that it takes to ensure that you stay alive. Right? The government has already made a judgment call on somebody on the one side of that line. And even if you haven't decided to avail yourself of euthanasia or assisted suicide yet, it doesn't mean the government hasn't already given you the go ahead. So in those circumstances, when the government has already dictated whose life is worth living and whose isn't, it naturally follows that those who the government has deemed unworthy are gonna have that suggested to them. Mm-hmm. The government's already passed the call on them. And there's there, there's no way around that argument. It's, it, that's the argument me and, me and Blaze came up with that we found tremendously effective in conversation is because it goes to the root of the lie that choice has anything to do with this when it really doesn't. It's about the government making a decision about whether or not you're worth you're worth suicide prevention or suicide assistance. Yeah, it, it boggles your mind that people can stand for an argument like that because you like you'd have to just picture yourself for two seconds at the end of your life and you don't know what that's going to look like. But I mean, and there's so many ways that that people you know, leave this world. And, and you, you can't expect that you're going to be one of the ones that, you know, goes out in a car crash when you're 95. Like you could be in a hospice and, and then having this pushed down your throat too. So um, is the church doing enough in these areas? Like I know euthanasia is a, is a tough one. It seems to be like the high level, but I mean, we do demonstrations and things like that um, for the pro-life movement. And, and, you know, we do like um, life training as it's called. Um, it, is there more we can do other than talking about it and, and, you know, maybe, maybe give us some examples of that. Like, Honestly, on, on, on those issues right now, on things like assisted suicide, I, w- I would refer listeners uh, to ARPA and I would refer them to, to uh, my book and Blaze's book, A Guide to Discussing Assisted Suicide, because the political battle is more or less over. Um, we lost mm-hmm. that one. And so there's not much we can do to roll it back. In fact, I think we can just see, I think we're, we're going to see uh, safeguards consistently fall because there really just doesn't seem to be breaks on this train in this particular country. Um, however, we do have the opportunity to communicate with other people, right? Um, our, our, our job as Christians is to influence the culture around us and we don't get to outsource loving our neighbor to our MP as easy as that might be. Mm. And so basically educating yourselves on how to have these discussions. And I, I don't think it's that hard. Um, a lot of people seem to think it's incredibly difficult I don't think it's that hard to, to, to just educate yourself on very simple arguments and have discussions. And the reason for that is because their arguments aren't sophisticated. Their arguments are garbage and our arguments are very good mm. um, because our arguments are based on truth and theirs aren't. Uh, the one thing everybody tells us when they, when they go do pro-life activism is that there are things that are scary about pro-life activism, for example, like when somebody gets mad and yells at you, it's uncomfortable and things like that. But the, the debates and the discussions, the arguments, the conversations themselves aren't actually that difficult most of the time because they don't have any, they don't really have any good arguments. Yeah. It's right. True. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like I actually read uh, something that you wrote. Uh, I had never read about it uh, or read it that put that way, but thinking of that as a supply and demand issue and, and the supply will be there uh, for assisted dying and for, um, and for uh, abortion, but we can do something about the demand side of that. And yeah, you exactly. know, maybe, maybe the, the train is, or the trains left the station on the supply end, but you know, I guess the church can still take a stand on the demand side. So, yeah, we can pump yeah, the brakes sure. on that for sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we got about, I don't know, about 20 ish minutes or so. If we want to keep this around an hour and a half. So I we've talked about a lot of a lot of different things in the culture and in politics, and whatnot. And, you know, a lot of 
yeah, I mean, frankly, a lot of depressing things. The culture is not heading in a good direction. So <laughs> it's uh, for many Christians and, and social conservatives, as, as they're referred to in political circles, um, it's, you know, it seems like a dark time. It seems like there's not too much hope in terms of in terms of the politics and the culture. And it's really easy to become super pessimistic, which is, I think, a problem that some of our uh, politicians who are trying to do good work in Ottawa and in, in Queens Park and in, in provincial legislatures across the country struggle with, because on the one hand, there's a lot of losses piling up in the political mm. side of things and the culture side of things. And it's hard to show supporters and, and Christians that look like there are some small wins happening and there are, you know, whether that's a good court decision here or there, uh, increased access to palliative care, some wins in, you know, a sex ed curriculum that would be littered with critical race theory and, you know, they can make a change and then, is, you know, at least reduce that substantially so that, you know, millions of kids aren't indoctrinated. Mm. Like there are some small wins happening and human trafficking is another issue as well, where there's some good progress being made. But it is I think it's hard for politicians to often show that without um, alienating their, I guess, their mainstream base if they're trying to get reelected, right? So do you have any advice for, uh, I guess, on the one side, the politicians to communicate these messages properly? And then on the other hand, for just the average everyday citizen to stay up to date and to know that, okay, look, like these are tough times. There's not going to be too many big, big wins, mm -hmm. but there are small reasons to be thankful. Do you have any uh, advice in terms of how to look at politics and see some of the few bright spots here and there. This is actually a very interesting question to answer. Cause again, context is, is really important. And I'm sure all the listeners are sick of me saying that already. Um, but like to, to discuss a micro issue, like, like, you know, how do we measure a politician's success? We have to look at, at the macro level to determine what's possible. So if you look at the latest data on Christians in Canada, it's probably less than 5% who actually attend church regularly. Like we are an, a, a minuscule minority in this country. And considering that we punch phenomenally above our, our weight, right? We've, we've, we've defined the winner in the last several conservative leadership races. Um, we have um, MPs like Arnold Viersen that are doing phenomenal work on fundamental moral issues. Um, we have uh, issues like abortion being kept in the, in the conversation, in politics, almost consistently uh, by, by politicians. And so I think we, we, we first need to recognize there are a lot of Canadian Christians who spend all of their time consuming American media and want to know why we can't have a Trump. And well, mm -hmm. like, look, they just passed that law. Why can't we pass that law? Because that's there. And this is here. And the situation is wildly different. We have a different system. Um, we have different politics. And we are a tiny minority. There's over 35 million evangelicals in the United States. Right. Um, that we are a tiny group of people. 11% of Canadians attend any kind of worship service, like multiple times monthly. That includes a Buddhist service, synagogue, mosque, Catholic church, evangelical church, reformed church, even United Church, which is like the NDP at prayer. Right. So that means 89%, 89% of Canadians don't attend any religious service at all. So take the people who actually care about our issues in a way that we do. Again, I we're lucky if we're talking 5%, hmm. right? So before you phone up Sam Osterhoff or Arnold Viersen or one of these guys and ask them why they haven't imposed theocracy yet, or, you know, why is, is our tiny group of people not managing to pull off a major win politically on abortion or on the sex ed thing or any of that first, maybe look at how many people were representing and how possible it was that I think places their accomplishments in a different light. So I'll use the Sam Osterhoff example, just because I assume a lot of your listeners know who he is. Um, Sam Osterhoff, the, the MPP, 
uh, from here in Ontario did a lot of work on on the education file because that's one of the roles that he was given by the premier. And mm-hmm. a lot of people looked at the resulting sex ed from Doug Ford, which was total garbage, and said, like, well, clearly Sam failed. Well, is that the case, or were some of the things that we won? So, and there were there were some significant things. There were things that got delayed to a later age. There was some education on pornography, etc. These were real tangible things you could point to and say that wouldn't have been there if our guy hadn't been there fighting for it. Um, and instead, uh, what a lot of Christians do is they make Christian politicians think twice before fighting at all because they phone them up and say, why didn't you deliver us what you couldn't have possibly delivered us? Mm-hmm. And they're just like, you know what? I'm going to stay away from moral and social issues entirely because every nothing that I accomplish is good enough. Even if I like, you know, worked my tail off day and night to get this done, what, I get nothing for thanks, yeah. right? And in fact, I get, you know, I get raped over the coals. So if they could have done more, that's on their conscience and, and they know that. And there's plenty of useless MPs in the House of Commons who could do a lot more on, on the abortion issue and could be more than a trained seal. Um, however, there are MP, MPs and MPPs who are trying their very best and just like try to be a little bit charitable, like maybe not being a jackass would be, would be a really good way to approach a politician who is working really hard because like there are people that I agree with that I don't want to agree with by the time I'm done talking to them. Right. Like, why aren't you guys doing X, Y, Z? I'm like, why aren't you doing it? You know, bug off. I've got better things to do than talk to somebody who's going to yell at me. Um, And so I just, I really think that one, the context of how many Christians are there in Canada who really care about these issues, B, what was possible for the politician to accomplish, and then C, how hard did he work to get that done? And maybe once you consider that context, you'll realize that a win actually is a win. The other thing is, I'm sorry, but short of a God-wrought revival that none of us can predict or facilitate, um, this country is not going to suddenly become amenable to legislation on the things that we want to protect ourselves from. And as such, you have to have realistic political expectations. We are not the United States of America. We are not going to have a Trump. Uh, We are not going to suddenly have this come to God moment where we get rid of abortion, et cetera. Again, short of something completely outside of our control on the realm of the divine. So people just have to be really realistic. And that is only depressing if you create expectations for yourself that defy reality. Right. If I thought that we were like so many people were saying Trump and Boris Johnson and like and working their way through these the list of these different people that encourage them, like who's who's Canada's next guy? We got Andrew Scheer. Right. Um, and then we got Aaron O'Toole, who was like the answer to the question, who could be worse than Andrew Scheer? Um, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and so and then everybody's like, well, like, who's our guy? Like, Canada's a very different country. And, and again, this is like my dad has a saying. He always said there's nothing more dangerous than somebody who reads a little bit. Um, when you only know a little bit of the context, but you decide to give somebody a piece of your mind, you're the one who looks like an idiot. Yeah. And I'm not saying that, you know, people have a responsibility to know as much as like, you know, nerds like us who spend time on podcasts talking about politics in the middle of the day. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that before you phone up an MPP who's working his tail off and giving him a piece of your mind, you might want to check to make sure uh, that any of your accusations have validity, because otherwise you're just making a good guy's job a lot worse than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that, sure. yeah. And that ties into in terms of, you know, look at yourself first. Like there are lots of opportunities to get involved in the political side of the pro-life movement. Like you're involved in the in the cultural educational side of things. But there are good organizations out there uh, right now comes to mind. They uh, they do fantastic work uh, getting pro-life yeah. politicians elected across the country. Well, why, why does it always have to be the politicians who fall on their sword every time? Yeah. Right. It's kind of like we all get a like, you know, not we. I work for a nonprofit, but like, you know, like a lot of people in our church communities. 
you know, they've got their businesses, they've got their farms, they've got all these things. Like they, we get to do our own thing and not stick up. But you know, that guy over there, because he's elected, has to speak to every moral issue at all times, in all places, and quote scripture and verse and and stuff like that. Right? Yeah. I agree that our politicians need to be held accountable, especially by other Christians to ensure that these things are being represented. But why do we treat them worse than we would a pro-choice neighbor that we're talking to? I don't understand yeah. that at all. Yeah. And I mm. think the way a lot of our Christian politicians have been treated by people in Christian communities over the last few years is shameful. Yeah, mm. no, it's, it's you know, for a large part, there's you know valid criticism to be had, but a large part of it is just abuse and, and it's completely uncalled for. And if you have a discussion with that person about the valid criticisms, um, if he's a good guy, he'll accept them if they're valid yeah. and you may discover they're not, but, you know, maybe have the conversation with him before tweeting at him in all caps or sending him a nasty Facebook message. Yeah, totally. What would you recommend? I don't have any specific in mind. Yeah, no, 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 no nothing. You've never seen any of these things. <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, I guess maybe to close out and get a little practical here at the end. Um, so, you know, in here in Canada, we will have an election at some point. That's still kind of to be determined. And, you know, if you look at the polls right now, like Justin Trudeau will most likely get elected. And, that you know, as you mentioned, the Conservative Party is, uh, you know, it's it's not in a good spot right now, both politically broadly and then also in terms of our issues and social conservative issues. Um, how would you advise people to reconcile, you know, voting for a party or volunteering for a party to help door knock or something like that? who has a pro-choice leader, an openly pro-choice leader, but yet we still have, you know, there is a fair number of pro-life uh, conservative MPs. Like, do you think it's worth the time for people to volunteer for, you know, like if there's a pro-life guy in your area, go out and help him and then hopefully make the party more pro-life and you get a new leader at the next election? Or what do you kind of make of the chances of the conservative party getting more pro-life? This is actually like an easier question to answer than it would be in, in the United States. I vote, I vote the candidate, not the party. So if I was, if I lived in Aaron O'Toole's riding, I wouldn't vote for him yeah. uh, because mm -hmm. I don't, I'll be voting conservative because this is my MP is, has a pro-life voting record. So that, this is an easy question for me to answer. I wouldn't have voted for Stephen Harper if if I lived in his riding back in the day. In fact, um, I delivered anti-Stephen Harper literature door to door in his riding because he was one of the primary leaders that was uh, that was working to silence pro-life MPs in, in the House of Commons. So don't look at it as a party issue. If you ask me, like, so I, I had a conservative member uh, party, party membership just so I could vote in the last leadership election that's now lapsed. I'll buy my next membership when I have to vote again. Um, but if you have a pro-choice um, conservative member of parliament. Sorry, folks, we ran into a uh, small technical difficulty there uh, with our Wi-Fi cutting out for two seconds. So we tried to clip this together as best as possible. So get you back to the program right now. Yeah, so just to summarize my approach to politics is I don't vote party, I vote the politician, and I vote for the most winnable pro-life candidate in a riding. So if I have a pro-choice conservative and then a PPC and a, and a Christian Heritage Party person, I pick the most winnable pro-life of those other two. So no, I'm not a, a big conservative party supporter, but I am a supporter of many great conservative MPs. I think the most encouraging note on that score is that a vast majority of the conservative caucus, an overwhelming majority of their caucus, voted for the ban on sex elective abortion with Kathy Wagon 12 put it forward, um, which shows that inside that party, uh, social conservatives dominate at this point still, even if I wouldn't vote for the leader if you paid me. Hmm. Yeah. You know, do you find it a bit reductionistic to, to vote on one issue or is this just an, an important enough issue to, to, uh, to vote one way or the other way on a candidate? On the abortion issue, yeah, right? It's like asking if... Uh, if there was two candidates and one of them had my preferred economic or foreign policy, but the uh, he 
endorse the the execution of two-year-olds every single day. Um, you know, I probably wouldn't vote for him. I'd vote for the one who was against that. Um, it basically, you know, in, in, in response to politics, there isn't a more important issue than abortion because abortion involves 300 babies being killed every day in this country. If you accept that reality, debates about being a, a one-issue voter uh, sound sound remarkably dehumanizing for, for a lot of reasons. I think it's easy even for Christians to forget how big of a deal the abortion issue really is and who the abortion debate is really about. Yeah, yeah, yeah true. 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 All right, well, we covered a ton of stuff. Uh, I think maybe one just quick one kind of for fun to end it off. You uh, you keep a close eye on U.S. politics, and there's been a lot of pro-life gains down uh, down in the states. Do you see uh, that you know Roe Rover, swayed the landmark uh, abortion decision? Do you see that getting flipped with the new justices that were appointed over the last couple of years, or what do you think the future of pro-life politics is down south? So it's an interesting question. Um, I don't think Roe v. Wade is going to get overturned with the the Mississippi case that they just uh, accepted. And the reason for that is because when they accept the case, they always indicate why they're accepting it. And the reason they accepted this was to not rule on Roe totally, but simply the, the benchmark for when you could make abortion illegal. So my, I could be wrong because they, they conceivably could overturn Roe. But my feeling is that what they're going to do is they're going to hollow out Roe v. Wade even further and basically allow a continuation of the trend where Southern states and pro-life states get to force abortion clinics out, get to restrict abortion further, uh, while while San Francisco and New York City become you know the booming abortion capitals of, of the United States, and and so basically my suspicion is you're going to see Roe v. Wade get hollowed out even further, and legislators given more latitude to to restrict abortion, um, if they rule against it totally and they basically um, don't touch Roe or or even worse, reaffirm Roe um, and, and Casey. And, and then I think that what we're going to see is the pro-life movement has to basically totally reconsider their legal strategy because uh, um, their legal strategy for, for over a decade now has been to pass laws that increasingly aim at Roe v. Wade central holding. And if, if, if there's indication from a court where we're supposed to have a 6-3 majority, that at least lean conservative, um, and we get turned down on that, then it's basically just time for a fundamental rethink. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, we yeah. should probably call our wraps at that. Lots, I think. Lots of digest for sure. Yeah. Um, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for joining the program, man. Really appreciate it. Any questions? I really enjoyed it. Anytime. Yeah. It's yeah. fantastic having you. And yeah, hopefully everybody uh, enjoyed that. They can go and uh, check you out, buy your books on uh, uh, what's your website? Um, the Bridgehead. Bridgehead. The Bridgehead. Bridgehead.ca. Uh, go check them out. Um, Jonathan Van Maren, also on um, Culture Wars podcast. I guess you haven't put out too many of those, but uh, the Van um, Maren show, I think, is oh the Van Maren show. Is the, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah, go check that out, um, and you can get a lot more information on the the pro life, uh, you know, re movement. So sounds um, good. Thanks, folks. You're all sorry for our technical difficulties, but uh, keep having real talk. Catch you later. Thanks so much. tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. You can send us your feedback by emailing us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. You can find us on social media by looking for the handle Reformed Real Talk. You can find us online by going to realtalkpodcast.ca. We look forward to your feedback as that's what helps us grow and improve as podcasters. Real Talk is produced by myself, Lucas Holfluer, Tyler Vanderwood, and Tim Van Woodenberg. The theme music was created by Calvin Hutton. The table and cabinet behind me were made by Ethan Vanderwood of Eureka Woods. And finally, this sign in the studio 
was made by Zebra Sides. That's it for now, folks. Catch you next time.